The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. I was going to say, Margaret, I feel like you should give people another primer on what 4B stands for. I know we covered it in like the very, very first show, but for people who haven't yes. been on before, why do we call the show 4B? Um, okay, so 4B. So 4B is our internal um, code name for drop whatever it is you're doing and call me back or someone on my team back. Um, hey, Nate. Um, and um, hey, Margaret. We, um, so about six, eight years, it's been so long. I think it was probably like eight years ago. I figured like mm, the portfolio is going to be growing and maturing. Stuff will just start to happen that we, we, we'd rather not have happen and we get to get, get prepared. So I wrote a crisis plan. And I felt very strongly that it needed a code word because I didn't want to have something show up on the calendar going like, you know, company X in trouble or, you know, insert detail there. So um, Mark had the genius idea of calling it 4B, which um, means, you know, plan 1A hasn't worked and now you're at 4B. So it's really, really bad. Um, and then I did a Google search and it showed basically nothing. It showed random classroom locations and whatnot. So I figured like this is this is sufficiently nondescript. And then um, Wired wrote a story about me and then in the story, Mark explained to them the 4B thing. So now at least people know if, if I call a 4B, it is a problem. So they know that much, but at least they don't know the detail details. So that's what 4B stands for. Oh, thanks, so, Margaret. Yeah, no I was going to say, should, should, we, should we like officially kick off the room here? Yeah, yes. let's get started. The show is started. So Thank that you. was like a, that was a good like pre-intro. So uh, I have the honors today of uh, getting to open the show. So welcome everybody to 4B with Margaret. Um, this is the A16Z show for unfiltered kind of comms and marketing advice. As uh, Margaret just explained, uh, that's why we call it 4B. Um, so you've probably noticed I'm not Margaret and there's a good reason for that. Today we are going to be turning the tables and putting Margaret in the hot seat. Uh, uh, we, we promise not to make it too hot, but um, we're going to uh, ask her questions. And uh, joining me as a co-host today is uh, Tina We, who is one of the big driving forces behind the show. So I don't know, Tina, do you want to say hi and maybe do a quick intro for yourself? Sure. Hi, Daz. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining. Um, maybe I'll just start off with a quick intro on Margaret in case for those of you who aren't familiar with her. Um, so Margaret's actually a founder herself. She started the Outcast Agency back in 1997, um, which for those who aren't familiar is a leading PR and comms agency working with both emerging brands and established brands. Um, you know, Margaret is our head honcho leading all of marketing here at A16Z. And she's really been at the firm since its inception and really played a pivotal role in terms of putting the A16Z brand on the map. Um, Margaret advises and works with tons of startups and startup founders. And so she's just a treasure trove of, of knowledge. And we're really excited to dig deeper and learn from her insights today. Yeah, awesome. And uh, go downhill from here. Thank you very much. <laughs> We're just gonna we're gonna set that we say that when you have comms people we're on a show right um, so it, our original plan today was actually to to ask Margaret a lot uh, to ask you about some of the common questions you get on PR and comms and then today as we were kind of looking through all of the headlines that have come out this last week we thought maybe we'd go a little bit more into what are some of the current news topics around 4B because there have been major headlines. Uh, from Basecamp, from Peloton, um, around some of the like comms issues that they've had, and we'd love to get your take on that, Margaret. So, 
I guess to set some quick context around base camp in particular, because I think this is a really interesting story. Um, you know, last week they announced a policy kind of similar to what Coinbase had done, uh, telling employees that they would no longer be allowing discussions of social or political issues at work or on work platforms. Shortly after that, there was a story in The Verge that reported there had been kind of a list of, quote, best names ever from customers, um, which in addition to having some privacy issues, there were some uh, some concerns that it might be a little bit racist with some of the names on it coming from African or Asian origin. Um, and all of that kind of culminated most recently in what seems to be like a lot of criticism, including an open letter from some of their different employees, and then an all-hands meeting where uh, shortly after, about a third of their team quit. So... That's at least the story as I understand it. But, Margaret, I'd like to know, like, is that kind of how you see this story? Was there anything I missed there? And yeah, then, I mean, know, could it have played out differently? I'll just do the disclaimer. Um, it, it's, it's one thing to talk about a 4B situation when you're in it. It's another thing when you're observing it. So I don't really have inside knowledge. So, like, just know that, folks, um, in the audience. Um, so I will just say that... Um, it all goes back to culture and then communications. I guess there's two C's now. Um, the um, Whatever you think about the policy, and we can talk about that, that's sort of a matter of personal opinion, right? Um, I'm not sure that um, Basecamp um, sort of had good awareness of what the, um, what the reaction was going to be. So I would encourage all founders and comms folks who help them and the comms folks usually spot this because they think about like, okay, what will the perception be, right? But the founders are like, this is obviously the right thing to do, so let's just do it and do it fast so I can move on to the next thing. Um, if you think that you're going to do something that is unpopular, then it's really, really, really important that you do it well and that there's a process behind it. And that maybe also you've done the cultural work up front that puts the company in a strong position. I'll just say... You know, at our own firm, like not everything that's decided is something that I like, but like I like the firm. So it's kind of easier to stomach. I'm not sure that was the case at Basecamp. And then the memo was a little abrupt. And then there is also sort of a dynamic that I think sometimes founders underappreciate where it's like when a founder says something. And I think one of the founders was in a Slack channel. This was, I think, part of Casey Newton's reporting, we should acknowledge. And any statement from a founder to an employee in public that is uh, critical or disagrees, whatever, just comes down like a hammer, right? So I think there are lots and lots of consideration aside from what do we all think about the policy? So rule number one is like, if you're going to announce something that you think might be deeply unpopular or divisive, then just make sure that you think that overall the culture and the company is really intact. And then you think about the permutations. And I think at Basecamp, the key difference between Basecamp and Coinbase, just factual difference, is Coinbase, when it did its announcement, was just a much bigger company. So, you know, if you run the numbers of like if 5% leave or if 10% leave or if 20% leave, it just looks very different at a larger company. And I think Basecamp is just much smaller. So any loss of talent just hit someone harder, right? And I, I've run a company sort of, of of that size and bigger and smaller. So it's just like every everybody really matters. So cultural work on an ongoing basis, I think is deeply, deeply important, particularly when you're going to do something that you think people are going to not like. 
I'll stop really, ranting there. Yeah, no, I was gonna say, like, I really love that you kind of separated out into, you know, he, there's both like the choice of what the policy is. And that's like, I think a that's come up a lot on the show around, you know, how you handle political topics in the workplace. Should you step, mm-hmm. should you have strong lines around it? And then there's the how you roll these policies out. I'd love to talk a little bit more about like kind of like ha- the how on the base camp story. Um, you know, for you, like when you look at the story and I realize like, you know, again, your disclaimer that you're on the outside, like where did this go kind of sideways and where did it become a 4B? And now that they're kind of in it, what's the advice you'd have have for that team or for base camp? Like where do you go from here? So what I, uh, my, I think from the press coverage, I think the people just didn't know it was coming at all. And um, so it, it came very abrupt. And I'm not sure there was a lot of sort of before, hey, take some people aside saying like, this is coming, we're doing this. What do you think? What's the best way to communicate it? I'm, I'm, it, it doesn't seem like that was the case. Um, and that may be done for very good reasons. I don't know. But if you're going to make an announcement like that, that just that can come down as pretty hard and hardcore. And um, and I think when you're making uh, an announcement of that sort where you think it's not going to be popular, I think the language has to be very warm, very kind, and, you know, longer is better. And, you know, that that's definitely something that should should be, <laughs> you know, more substack length than a tweet length. Um, and I, I think that's sort of where the company kind of didn't do a great job. And then the further explanation also didn't display a lot of heart. And I think that's, that is, that is really hard. And I, and my, my sense is that the employees are kind of like, how do I explain this to my family, to my friends, depending on what your view is, right? If you say, if you hate the policy, then you're, then you're going to be stuck with explaining it to the family and to your friends and maybe to the people who've taken the the buyout, right, which was offered, which that was a good thing, by the way. And I don't know that the whatever communication I've seen, at least, helped folks do that. And that's the other thing that's really um, important to realize is when you are talking to your employees, you're also, you're also helping them figure out, like, okay, what am I going to say when I come home? What am I going to say when I talk to my friends? What am I going to say at the cocktail party? And I think it behooves you to help folks um, with 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 thoughts and with language. Not that you tell them what to say, but if you explain yourself well, it becomes something that can travel. Yeah, that's it's kind of interesting because like that sort of comes down to uh, this idea of empathy. And I want to go back to I think what you said there around like the buyouts being a good thing. I'm really curious, mm-hmm. like why in your mind was that? Because that, that to me was something that Coinbase also did. And I'd love to get into a little bit of like, how was this the same or different from Coinbase? Like, is it the same playbook? And why is having something like that buyout option um, so that people can walk away a, an important part if you, as part of how you roll this out? Well, look, this is, I mean, we're living in a time where for a lot of folks, uh, probably not going to be popular, but I'm going to say where where politics and having the correct opinion is almost a religious thing these days becomes very, very, very important to people. And and then you're making a rule change, you know, and and that affects their the view their view of their employ their employment and you know basically and and you have their job hostage, right? Not that it's not a free country and people can go wherever they please. So um, so there's that. And then I think um, it gives the policy teeth where you go like, well, if you don't like it, then you can go somewhere else. Now, of course, you can do that anyways, but it eases that process. 
Um, and, and like that might've made it, you know, quote unquote, too easy at a small company that, that it's, it has hit harder by a lot of employment loss. Hey, Margaret, I have a question just to, just to play devil's advocate. You know, some might say that it's a pretty extreme policy to sort of outright ban all conversations about politics, you mm -hmm. know, at work. So, you know, what about considering something more medium ground? Like what about just like setting ground rules on, on how you can have the conversations and, you know, sort of knowing that like, hey, these conversations are going to happen anyways instead of like an outright ban. Like, can we moderate these conversations? Like, what are your views on that? Yeah, no, look, I think you have a good point. And look, there's no banning. I mean, it is a free country and people like, particularly having been a founder, like people will talk about stuff that you don't know about and like they'll talk about whatever they want, right? So nothing will save you from like, people will just have their own opinion and will say whatever they want. Um, I I will say, if you're saying like, hey, look, at, at our place of employment, here's how we want people to kind of conduct themselves while they're working. I think that's a totally legitimate thing. That's an absolutely legitimate thing. And I happen to be, uh, I know it's unpopular. I happen to be a fan of this policy because um, I just sort of wouldn't ever want to work anywhere where my employer kind of speaks for the entire company, including me, around politi political issues. Now, you might say like, well, come on, like, it's like Black Lives Matter. Like, how hard is that? You know, and of course, that's an obvious thing. But I don't know that, you know, our founders or whoever, whoever the CEOs will always have the right political opinion that's consistent with mine. And I'd rather have my keep my own politics and my own religious views or my own whatever it is, right, than have the firm uh, in this case or any company speak for the employee base. I also think that particularly for issues that are super, super important people to people, you want to make as much room as as you humanly can because the company exists around a mission. It exists around a mission of, you know, curing cancer or, you know, making the right investments, whatever the mission is. And you want as many super, super talented people to come together to accomplish that mission. And very importantly, you want that group of people to be diverse, diverse in race, gender, sexual orientation, but also thought. And if everybody has to have the exact same political rule book, you're cutting off like a whole bunch of folks. And I just don't think that's a that's the best way to run a company. I also don't think that's very tolerant, by the way. So those are my two cents. Uh, so I, I guess to like one thing that because I've heard you talk about this a lot, Margaret, on the show, and I you know it's an and I don't think you like it particularly, Daz. I'm sorry, but you, you know I do have a different take from you, um, which is, but I think it kind of goes to the heart of the question I'm going to ask next, which is. You know, a lot like playing kind of devil's advocate on this. And like when I talk to to people, you know, in my social circles and they have kind of that, uh, you know, more political bent, they want their organizations to be more political. A lot of it comes down to this like complaint that um, calling something political becomes this like excuse to avoid hard conversations. And I think mm -hmm. some of that goes to this idea that like the political can be kind of vague, this like vague term that we put as a label on conversations we don't want to have. So. I'd be curious your take on like what exactly is the political, you know, because for instance, for, you know, I think it was like two weeks ago, we had some government and policymakers on the show talking about, you know, how you work with policy and government. And so somehow that policy isn't political, but then there's political topics. So what's that line between policy, political, what makes something political 
in in your sense that you wouldn't that you agree with the policy? I think that's a really, really good question. It's also a legitimate point because companies have take a stance on certain things that hinder the mission, right? So for example, say if you say you work at a defense company and you know, like the next president, I mean, I'm making shit up, obviously, right? But the next president is like, we're going to end all wars. We're never going to have any defense, whatever. You're going to be like, ooh, this is going to suck for our mission, right? So, and then all of a sudden you've taken a political stance. Um, so I agree with you that companies will do that. In my view, and, you know, I haven't thought about this, you know, deeply enough to go have the perfect definition, but I think it's sort of political opinions that have very little to do with the company mission or nothing to do with the company mission, but that are potentially super divisive and hurt people's feelings. That's sort of, you know, the broad way I would think about it, right? So, you know, whatever people think about, you know, like gay marriage, that used to be a political topic. And of course, we all have gotten all over ourselves, thank God, right? But like those things that are just like super divisive at times um, that have nothing to do with the company's mission, and that make people just go like, I don't want to work with you anymore because I don't like your opinion on X. That to me is um, a tough one. But what about areas where employees are voicing opinions that are in direct conflict with the company's line of business? So like, for example, last year when Prop 22 was happening, right, that proposition that were like all these um, gig companies were trying to keep gig workers classified as independent contractors and not right, as full-time right. workers, right? And there was that Uber engineer that came out and did this big op-ed, I think, in TechCrunch that was publicly against it. Like, what do you do in those instances, right? Curious. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. And the same thing with, um, at Google, Project Maven. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, that was a few years back. Uh, Google had a big contract, uh, the Google Cloud business. And that's sort of an enterprise software company that Google is trying to build within sort of the Google umbrella. And they were, um, they were hosting drone footage and their AI was going to be able to, use, um, to be used to analyze that drone footage. And people got all up in arms and like, then Google canceled the contract. And it went to some lucky winner, Amazon or whatnot. Um, so... I would take issue with that. I sort of think like if you, if, and, and, you know, Google's case is particularly tricky because like they have so many different businesses. So if you accommodate everybody's sort of ideology, like quickly, what are you going to be able to do? Right. And you see that play out on the AI thing and whatnot. So I would be way more draconian and go like, this is what we do. This is the business that we're in. And if you actually don't like the company's mission, then it's a really tough place for you to work. So I'd be pretty hardcore about that. And then after that, I'd be like, whatever you want to believe, great. If you want to you know, go protest while, you know, during office hour, like go do it. I'm fully supported. But I don't want us to use that time in the office to divide ourselves and, and not come together to work on a common purpose, because that is what the company is, right? It's a common purpose. People come together around a common purpose. I hope so. Anyways, that, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I have always like really, really appreciated the viewpoint that you bring on this, because like you said, it is very different from my own. Um, but I think it comes back to like something I know has been like kind of a shared core value, which is like, you have to be able to have respectful disagreements. Yeah. Um, and at heart, like that's kind of what it gets back to. And, and, you know, it is challenging. Like for instance, as somebody who identifies as, as gay, like 
you know, to go into a workplace that wouldn't make a statement about gay marriage, like that's obviously hard because there is a personal impact. I mean, I think right. that's where a lot of these questions do become uh, sort of really, really challenging. Um, and I think that's a really, there's a, there's a good point. Like I, so I've, this might possibly my last quibble, but like, so I think that goes back to culture. If the culture of the company isn't run where it's clear that the leadership and your colleagues clearly care about every person, no matter what, matter gender, you know, sexual, whatever it is, right? Insert whatever it could be, then you've already fucked up. And no, no statement, no comment is going to save you from that. And I actually think that is so much more important than you know, signing some full page ad, full page ad in the New York Times, right? Which is usually what people do. So I'd be much more, I would, yeah, I would advocate much more for like, okay, do people internally know that they're valued and that they are seen no matter who they are, even if they voted for some president that you don't like, right? But like, can, can we make sure that the culture really explains that and fully acknowledges that? That I care much more about, like what we say to the public so that we can say we get our little virtue badge. And I think that often gets lost in the shuffle and people go straight to like, why don't we do a statement? And it's like, wait, can we actually focus on the actual work that should happen inside of each company so that hopefully the statements are there? And also all these statements, they are so blindingly obvious in, in my view that like really have to say that out loud but internally of course when something happens like you know gay marriage or this asian thing that's happening right now internally you want to of course go like hey this is happening we really care very deeply about all of our employees whatever their race is like i do think that's important i could care less about like what the company says to you know the public if you will i think that that other work work is way more important and i think there are a lot of, I mean, personally know, there are a lot of CEOs who do the public statement, but not the actual internal work. And that's where people get very disillusioned, I think. I mean, I actually, you've, you've definitely tweaked my thinking a little bit on this and that I totally agree in the fact that if you have that trust with your employees, if, you know, like when I feel valued in a workplace, I'm not sitting there questioning whether, you know, I'm working with people who might be homophobic because the trust is there. Um, I want to take a, a moment just to reset the room for those who might ha have just joined us. So for those who are joining, this is 4B with Margaret. Uh, it's the A16Z show for like unfiltered comms advice with uh, the A16Z head of marketing, Margaret. Uh, today's show, Tina and I are flipping the script and we're interviewing Margaret. Uh, so for those of you who just joined, we've been talking a little bit about Basecamp, the role of political discussions in the workplace. Um, and I think this is a good chance to possibly move on to maybe another topic that's been in the news, which is Peloton. Uh, Tina. Yeah. So, um, so today's big headline for, for those who aren't familiar is that Peloton today issued a voluntary, voluntary recall of its treadmill and an apology. And this is after reports of, you know, at least one death from a child and like 70 possibly related injuries. So it was per, a pretty big deal. What's interesting about this is this is actually a reversal of their previous stance about a month ago when the Consumer Product Safety Commission first came to Peloton and asked them to actually do a voluntary recall, and Peloton refused. And so, you know, now, you know, they're obviously they've reversed it, they've apologized. Margaret, I'm so curious, like, if you're Peloton right now, like, what's going through your head right now? Yeah, I mean, like, the, the, the thing, look, at, Peloton 
they they didn't have an unreasonable point initially, but they basically I think the key error was that they blamed the user, right? So they basically said like you should keep children away from like a moving treadmill, and you should use your key and all of that, and like you just can't do that. That's you know that's uh, that's a really hard thing. And then to the regulator, they basically said like, well, you're wrong, and we're not doing it. So they kind of poked the bear two ways, and that just put them in a corner. I can totally see if I owned a treadmill. I mean, I like to run outside, but if I owned a treadmill, like, yeah, you sh- you should not have a toddler running around the treadmill, right? So, like, I totally I totally see the logic of what the company was thinking, and this is what's always so hard about these crisis situations, right? Where you could like, duh, obviously you shouldn't have your kid like you know crawling under the treadmill. But like that just doesn't work, right? So this is why it's really, really useful to check yourself and go like, okay, how's this going to sound to people? And ask someone else, because you know when you, when you're running a company and you're going like, but wait, this is anyhow. So they box themselves into a corner. So it was really good to see that because like, all right, our bad. We're going to recall those products. Um, I wish um, we have a saying at the office. And it's gross, but I'm going to say it anyways. When you eat shit, don't nibble. Meaning when you apologize, like go really long, like just make the apology sound and it's becoming increasingly difficult. Make it sound like unlike any other apology that you've read from big insert CEO name there or politician in there, like make it for real. So I wish it had gone a little longer on the apology, but it was definitely the right thing to do. And it took them a while. I understand why. I think these these are. It's easy to go like, duh, they should have done that straight away. But it's also easy to go like, you know, keep your kids away and there's a key and all that kind of stuff. Anyhow. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it sounds like you know their initial reaction is sort of lacked a little bit of empathy. So they should have maybe done a little bit more of an empathy check. Um, yeah, and so- it's, it, again, you cannot like. I don't care how dumb the user is. You, you just can't go there. You'll never win that fight. You see this. You see this with the elections, right? Like everybody got blamed for the election except for the voters. You just can't do that. <laughs> it's just a no go. Totally. So, but in general, though, like when when we're thinking about sort of apologies and mistakes, I mean, this happens. This will happen inevitably to any any company, right? When you deal with sort of unexpected things, like when is the right time to issue an apology? And like, should you just always just immediately, you know, issue something, a statement to say like, hey, we're sorry, we're looking into it? Or sort of what's your philosophy? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to make a blanket statement. I sort of think like, you know, I'm not a big fan of apologizing for everything every five seconds. Just figure out like, is this a real thing? And do we actually fuck up? And if it's a real thing, you actually fucked up. Like you better fucking apologize and do it really fast. And again, make it very, very big. Because what what you're toying with is, the trust of your customers and all the other constituents. And so if what I if if Peloton had done more, I would have more like, I can't wait to buy my tel- Peloton because they've done such a good job, right? And that's sort of a little bit what they left on the table, even though they did absolutely do the right thing. And um, if you have to do a product recall, right, like it's good to go like, and we're going to do X for customers and we're going to, you know, I don't know, help subsidize your other classes or whatever it is, right? Or we're going to do something on YouTube or or whatnot. Like do do an extra thing that kind of surprises and delights your customer versus, okay, now we're doing the right thing, which is obviously the right thing to do. Um, 
there is a school of thought where people don't want to ever apologize for anything. I think that if you're going to be that, if you're going to have that attitude, you really do have rhino have to have rhino skin. And most people I know kind of want to be liked enough that they can't really do that. I think the people who could probably get away with that um, are folks like Larry Ellison. I mean, I admire him because he just doesn't give a shit. Um, at one point, he <laughs> the company was accused. You guys are all too young, but at one point, the company was accused of uh, looking into the com- competitors' executives' trash. And I was repping the competitor and we're like, this is exciting. We pitched it to the Chronicle and Larry Ellis said, of course we would do that. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) But like, you have to be, you have to be that guy, you know, if you're not not going to apologize. Um, And and I find very few people are that guy or woman. Got it. So then if you've had to deal with sort of this type of erosion and trust, right? Like as a company, like, how do you come back with it? Are you just waiting for time to pass? Like, like you said, there's other extra things you can do to sort of surprise and delight your customer. But like, is there sort of a playbook for regaining the public's trust after you've made a, a misstep like this? Well, this is, you know, I've, I've said this in the past, but like a crisis ideally is like a book. And you, you know, the book should be as short as humanly possible and then there needs to be an end where at the, it's like a whodunit book. It's like a crime novel, right? You definitely, you want to know like what happened, how was it resolved, right? And of course, in the business setting, like how are you going to improve your safety methods so that doesn't happen again, depending on what it is, right? And you want to close that book, but you want basically people to go away and it's like, I get it. I know what happened. I know how they're fixing it. I believe them. That's what you need to get to. So um, in the case of Peloton, not being a customer and not knowing the company, I would say like when they ship their new product, go along on the, here are all the improvements we've made. You know, the, the base is lower, so you can't get under there, whatever it is, right? And here are the different keys and here's the auto stop. I think they already are going to do a software update that does an auto stop thing. That's really good. Try to go along on those. People go like, okay, they understand, they have heard it, they are fixing it. I'm good now. That's what you want. Whatever the flavor is, that's that's the feeling that you want people to walk away with. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So I want to let people know we're going to be opening up for uh, for audience questions here shortly. So if you have one uh, to get get your hand up so that we know to uh, to bring you on stage. And I want to take this moment to give a short disclaimer uh, or just a note that uh, we do record these conversations so that we can run them later on A16Z Live. So if you missed part of the conversation, you'll be able to catch it there. Um, But for those of you who are interested in coming up to chat or ask questions, that does mean that you are consenting to us using your words and profile image in that uh, in a future recording related to the event. Um, So with that, while people are kind of getting their their hands up, uh, one of the questions I had for you, Margaret, is, um, you know, around this question of like kind of going direct versus media. So um, as these stories have come out, you know, whether it's Basecamp or whether it's Peloton, you know, they've both played out with some amount of kind of direct to the employee or direct to consumer messaging, but they also play out with uh, sort of the media putting these stories out. How do you think about which channels um, to use as you're kind of trying to rebuild that trust? Is it better to try to talk directly to employees and to consumers? Do you try to get out there with a media story? How do you think about that right now? I'm sorry, I had to unmute myself. I'm (laughs) sort of of the mind that it's a yes and situation. You know, this is sort of an unsatisfying answer, but I definitely think you need to talk to your constituents directly, whether they be customers, employees, regulators, you know, and and not through, um, you know, 
to the extent you can pick up the phone and all of that, like that, that's super, super important. But then the media will interpret what you're doing. So, and they're obviously an incredible amplifier or detractor. So you definitely want to do both. Um, and, but like definitely do not only outsource your communication to the media because, you know, they'll have their own view of it as they rightly get to, right? So definitely do do both. I mean, is there a point where, like, you know, so I'm thinking, for instance, in the case of Basecamp, is there a point where trying to go through the media can backfire because they're looking to kind of have that that next story or, you know, there's a certain narrative playing out and it's so out of your control? Yeah, I do. I think when once it's gone, like, super, super, so there is the 4B that is happening that you're trying to go um, to solve without the world finding out, right? Uh, or at least you want to have the solution before the world finds out, right? And then there's the 4B that's playing out in public and you've kind of not succeeded the first time around or the second time around, right? Those are really, really the hardest. And at that point, I'm not sure um, Basecamp or a company in that situation makes much more headway by going like, let's let's do interview number five, um, I, particularly also in this particular case, the company isn't super big, right? So you can actually reach the employees and, and your customers are, you know, you know, your customers' names, so you, you can reach them. Um, and maybe some time goes by until you go and brief a reporter who you think is going to be fair and go like, here are all the things that the company has done post this incident. And now we're in much better shape. But I think right now it's probably tough. Right now, I think you're down to phone calls and blog posts and Zoom calls. I forgot about Zoom. I can't believe I, I forgot the pandemic. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> see, now we've come full circle. We're back to the vaccines we were talking about at the top of the hour. Um, I see we have a couple people who have joined us on stage. Um, David, did you have a question for Margaret? I was working on developing a question. I didn't think I was going to be the first one called up. <laughs> We if, you want to say, if you like, we can give you another minute. Ed, how about you? Do you have a question? Hi, I'm Ed. Thank you for the conversation today. During a crisis, can you share how companies and leadership know two things, when to include comms and when the issue is of such significance, it, it merits a, an incoming disaster? It's easy to look backwards and see um, how Peloton and um, unfolded. I'm curious if you could speak to those. Thank you. It's an excellent question. Usually the, um, the, the, the question is, and this is why it's good to always include comms, because the question for comms will be like, okay, so what, what would the story be in the New York Times and how would we feel about that? And if you don't want that story in the New York Times, or in, this is not picking on the New York Times, but if you don't want that story, then you've got yourself a situation. Is it a full-blown crisis? We don't know. And then comms should always be in the loop, um, whether it's internal, external, probably both, depending on the issue. And then the core team consists of the whoever the executive is whose department has the problem, not to blame them, but like they are at the source of the problem. The CEO needs to have some involvement because ultimately he'll make the call. You probably always have legal involved. And depending on what it is, you will have HR involved. So, if, you know, if it's an internal because I don't know, a lawsuit or someone's quitting who's high profile, whatever. That's obviously an HR um, situation. Great. Thank you for the question, Ed. Um, yes, it was uh, a good I one. See 
<laughs> I see. I see. David is gonna maybe ho hopefully put his hand back up once he has formulated a question. Come back. Um, I feel like the end of the, <laughs> the Titanic. Come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it does look like we have Scott up. Scott, did you have a question for Margaret? Uh, yes, thank you. It seems to me that in my career uh, in Fortune 500 America, that a lot of these public statements usually come out of a really nasty internal HR incident that they haven't handled appropriately. Somebody yelled at somebody or you know, somebody did bad thing X to other person. And, and they are like, I will take care of this and then go to the media. Um, when they really should have fixed their internal HR. What do you think about that kind of scenario? Yeah, at the I don't know if you caught the very beginning, but I think a lot of a lot of a lot of four Bs are the result of a cultural problem. And it's either a cultural problem between two people or a cultural problem sort of across the organization or like it, it, but it is it it often is something that if, if you fix that earlier, it wouldn't become a crisis. I'm not sure. Your, your question is sufficiently vague that I'm not sure I'm answering it, but I think that's the answer. But feel free to follow up if I'm not. Yes, no, thanks. Um, I just, I think they should pivot internally instead of making these grandiose statements. But uh, the I think ego of the founder leads to some of these statements being made. I don't know. I mean, look, the if I think a lot of, so it depends on what you're talking about. If Sorry, the dog is barking. Um, if you're talking about... Um, you know, these sort of political statements. Yes, a lot of founders have their opinions and would like them to be publicly. Sorry, my dog has got home and she's very excited. Um, but some of these internal things, I think just assume that many CEOs would much rather not have to talk about them publicly. It very much depends on what the situation is. Um, because if you, if you have a crisis on your hands, the, the, the whatever ego you ascribe to the CEO will probably want to keep him from uh, sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Scott. Um, we've also brought up Mary. Mary, did you have a question? I do. I could spend the whole, t <laughs> the entire time asking questions. And thank you for this room because it's really, really powerful and important. So I'm uh, the founder CEO of um, the largest, um, the uh, really the, the world's largest uh, hairdresser network. We have about 10 million members from about 90 countries around the world. We're 21 years old. And um, we've had so many issues with cancel culture over this past year. Um, so many different things that have come up um, over the past year, and especially with influencers really being strong in, in Instagram, et cetera. And we had an issue, at, I don't want to say the major manufacturer, um, who had a big issue where in the UK um, and other parts of the world, um, African-American hair is... Uh, um, is called by a different term terminology, and in the U.S., when they posted it, it was taken in 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 a way that was so um, considered outrageous that um, there was a major major thing that happened, and they were trying to cancel this company in the U.S., which and it, it got really really big. And I'm just curious in that situation, um, and like I said, I've got so many different questions. How does the company respond? And so basically. They were talking about um, kinky hair. Um, they were talking, there, there were just different terminology that's used, um, in, like I said, in the UK, um, in other parts of the world that's not, that are not used in the US and that are considered to be negative in the US. So I'm just curious, 
had, the company did not respond. It took several days to respond. And of course it built and built and built. And um, Margaret, I really appreciate what you have to say about, um, we had the same situation because we are the largest media in the world for hairdressers. Um, when Black Lives Matter, the whole situation came up. Um, of course, I mean, we, I mean, we, we ever, we are an incredibly diverse company of 35, predominantly women, gay, trans, um, uh, I suspect you uh, have every flavor of person in your profession. We do. So when, when we were, um, you know, when somebody threw us under the bus, um, for, you know, being in some way, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, racist or, or things like that, which is just completely not the case. Like, and there's not, there are not many people that would say that my, and not even that it was really more like our team, which is extremely, um, liberal. Our team is like, Oh, we, we you know, we've got to just post because we've got 1.8 million followers on Instagram and over a million on Facebook. They're like, we have to post black hair for the next two weeks. And I said, that is so not only disingenuous, it so negates all the things that we've already done because we've always, we've never considered it to be a negative. I mean, we've never considered, like our stages have always had, you know, black professionals on it and not because they're black, just because they're the best at what they do. So, you know, there was a lot, it, it just got really, really crazy. And, and I'm like, we're not doing this for two weeks to do nothing but black hair because it, it just, it, it, that's just patronizing. So I'm just curious, like, how do you manage cancel culture in this, this world and, and, you know, and how do you, with a company, a major company like that, who really didn't do anything wrong in a sense, but it was considered wrong. How do you respond? I mean, these things are just such huge issues today. And I, I totally don't believe in cancel culture. I really don't. I have a really big issue with it, you know, after being, I'm 55 years old and, you know, we spend a lot of time building, this is my second company that I've owned. You spend a lot of time building companies only to have one negative lie potentially bring yeah, people so down. It, it sounds very like, I, you know, kind of to, to maybe distill the question here. I think that um, what you're, what you're kind of asking is like when a company doesn't necessarily feel like they've done anything wrong, but something, you know, that uh, has been taken the wrong way and has resulted in cancel culture. Like, how do you respond? Yes. Um, Thank you. Margaret, what my long what, well, unabridged version. Thanks. <laughs> well, we, I really appreciate the the context, and that was a great. Uh, you know, I think it's you know these are really interesting times that we live in, um, and I you know this this comes up. At, you know, personally, I think we've all had that moment where we say something with the best of intentions, and it gets taken the wrong way. But what happens when it's a company that does that, Margaret? What what's your response here, Mary? Can first of all, congrats on all the stuff that you've built. Uh, this sounds like your second company. So that's awesome. And I'm a huge fan of people who sort of economically empower like the, the, the folks who are not in the Zoom economy. So thank you for doing that. Um, I appreciate it. And I so feel for you because um, our lexicon of available words is shrinking by the minute. And um, I would say stay, stay strong, sister, because I it doesn't feel like you have a cultural issue or if you've actually screwed up, right? Like earlier in the conversation, we said like, did you actually fuck up? Right. Cause then you should apologize and do it big. Right. But it doesn't sound like you actually screwed up. Um, and then after that, there are two, two schools of thought. One is never let any criticism go unanswered. And the other one is sort of like, never explain yourself if it's a waste of time. And I think you pick one and you stick with it. So, for example, in our case, 
the way our folks are wired is like they'll never leave anything unanswered. So if somebody writes and say like our returns are bad, we're going to respond to that. Right? Whether it does, whether it has an, an impact on our business or not, that's just kind of how we roll. And I'm not half the time I don't agree with it, but like that's how we roll, right? So you pick that lane where like if that is if that is the lane you pick, then you would make a short statement on Twitter saying like you know this language is okay in the UK, it's not okay in the US. And, you know, like, and leave it at that. And if you are not that person where you just go like, you know what, I'm only going to apologize and speak up if I feel like we've actually screwed up, then just set it out. Again, you have to have a thick skin, but like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anyone ever to apologize for something that they actually don't think they've done. So yeah. stay strong, girl. I honestly, I, I, I just want to say thank you for that because um that's exactly how I feel and I've been in this way too long and we've done way too much good to sit and continue to apologize because I feel like the more you apologize the more you're expected to and exactly. we've done nothing but great work in you know for the last 21 years and I'm not going to apologize for anything that we've done if we if we've made a mistake we're going to apologize but when we haven't and people blatantly, you know, attempt to take you down. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, I, I just refuse to do it. I'm not going to answer to it. So I just uh, really, and I also appreciate what you had to say about political situation as well. I totally agree. Uh, I lean definitely more conservative. My And, and I'm obviously, I'm incredibly um, uh, non-conservative as it relates to who people want to, you know, love is, a, right. is an amazing obviously, thing. Obviously, given your business. Yeah, exactly. But um, but we all have so much respect for each other. And that's what's amazing. It's just it's the respect internally. And we're all going for the same goal. So again, you're, I really you're accomplishing a mission. By yeah, the way, really also, do not ever apologize for your hair because it's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Need a great hairdresser? We know where to get one. <laughs> I might take you up on stuff. Yeah, thanks, so, thanks yeah, a lot so for the please. question. Thanks a lot for the question, Mary. Um, I actually want to follow up on that before before we go to Ian, because I think uh, one of the things as I was listening to you talk there, Margaret, with Mary, that I was wondering about is how do you kind of have that moment and what? how does a comms person help a company figure out if you really haven't done anything wrong and you should hold that line versus like maybe you have and there's that moment of defensiveness? Because I think they can look the same. So how do you figure out... Yeah, that actually, I think, is a challenge for the comms profession. So I'm going to tell all the comms people who are in the audience, like, back up people. Because as a comms person, you are on the front line of receiving a lot of the, or looking at the angry tweets and the outraged press calls or what, whatever it is. You get all the incoming of the other side. And you are, by nature, in the business of building bridges. Right. So the, the sort of the very traditional comms job is like help the executive, help your CEO tell their story the best possible way and then convince a reporter who doesn't have this as a job to write some version of that story. Right. So you're a bridge builder and you're very diplomatic and you're trying to make people happy. And I think as a result, I think comms people oftentimes find themselves in, in sort of it, it runs away with you. This like that muscle is so trained that you want to please everybody, but then you often are inclined to recommend the damn apology to make the whole thing go away. I have done this and I'm pretty hardcore. And so just as a comms person, like really, 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 if if the company hasn't screwed up, if you once you get into the apology game, by the way, I have a whole rant on apologies, like 
it, it's very hard to get out of it. Like you have to apologize for everything. And by the way, once you start apologizing, here's the next thing that happens. Then people go like, well, what are you going to do about it? So now you've apologized for something that you actually didn't do, but now you have to come up with a solution for something you actually didn't do. Right. And then God forbid, that's not good enough. Like, so it just becomes this downward spiral. So this, I think would be a message to the comms people. It's like, don't convince your CEO to apologize for something that the company actually didn't fuck up. Great. And, uh, uh, so I want to go to Ian here, and I think like if we had a like frequent customer card, Ian, that you would you would get it. So thank you for joining us on stage. Um, <laughs> would love to hear what your question is. Well, thank you. I I feel like um you know one of those loyalty shopper per- people now with the <laughs> the team here. We glad um, we're glad you like our store. So keep coming. <laughs> exactly. Your questions are always excellent. So great. Well, thank you. So um very intrigued by the conversation and the reason is we've over the past what let's say decade have been very active across the country and world in employee advocacy right we've consistently said well you know what it's not just the communications team we want the entire organization to be able to be advocates for what the company is doing. So with that taken into account, how do you draw the line with enabling your team to be advocates in the community, but then as they do that more, when something happens, people are going to go to them saying, hey, you're active in the community. What do you think about this? And, you know, I find it very challenging to say, oh, you know what? We're active. We talk about things. We do things. But now just go to the communications team. So where? how do you address that? I'm curious, you know, is there a right or wrong? Is there a best practices? Or is it all individual? That is such a very good question. Thank you, Ian. Um, so the the good news is all of your employees are now your ambassadors, right? And then the bad news is that goes sideways. It really does go sideways. So um, best practices are have a lot of um, a lot of training, a lot of cultural training, a lot of training on social media. Yet, by the way, you just made my case for having employees stay out of out of politics. By the way, there's a separation here. If you say I had a Twitter account that had nothing to do with the fact that I'm an operating partner at Andreessen Horowitz and I just want to go like my liberal or conservative or whatever, like that's one thing. But if you have this sort of this integrated identity, right, it looks like you're speaking for the company. And I tell folks that if you are speaking for the company, then here here are the values that the company espouses when dealing with other folks. And that obviously includes other folks on Twitter and everywhere else. And in fact, we have a beautiful values book and we don't let anybody sign an offer unless they have signed up for that values book. And that includes things like we are a first class organization and we won't have relationships that we conduct only in a first class basis. So, and then we explain, okay, what does that mean? That means we don't take people down companies or individuals. We don't rant about whoever or whatever company on Twitter, right? So we do a lot of training. 
and a lot of internal communications so that we hope that we're never going to be perfect. No organization is ever perfect. This whole thing is aspirational, as you know, because it includes humans. We're we're aspirational people. We're flawed. Um, But like, hopefully you have engendered as much information and as much sort of actual sort of specifics of like, here is how we conduct ourselves and how we are in the world that the employee base becomes true ambassadors and they amplify what you want to communicate versus detract from it. That makes sense. So I, I want to throw another quick thing in and then I'll be quiet. So you have, you know, industry leaders who, you know, for the most part, I think they try to be good corporate citizens, but they also have their own opinions. So Mm -hmm. when you have someone like Jeff Bezos who acquires the Washington Post, how would you address something like that where, you know, industry leader definitely touches a bunch of different global um, topics, but then they acquire the Washington Post, which clearly has somewhat of a political nature, especially given who was president at the time. Is there an easy way to have your team not get political? I, it just seems like you're almost throwing people under the bus to say, okay, come at us. <laughs> well, it sounds like that's kind of exactly what happened. I mean, not to the Amazon employee base, but you had like the president of the world's uh, most powerful nation, I think still, I don't know, um, you know, going at the richest guy. So that was uh, interesting to watch for for sure. Um, look, there are two schools of thoughts. I mean, I, I, we had Jim Messina on the show and he's like, well, he knew that buying Amazon, buying the Washington Post was a colossal mistake because all the politicians were going to hate him for doing it. I mean, there's a happy version of this. Like the Washington Post is doing great. You know, he revitalized the paper and yeah. But this is, um, let me zoom out from Bezos, Washington Post, um, and the former president. Um, I think I feel for CEOs in some ways, because if you basically follow all of my advice, you kind of don't really get to be a loud private citizen, because you're always going to speak for the company. That is inherent in the job. So, you know, even if you want to go protest or do make donations, it all becomes one thing. So it, it actually is a very, very complicated question, which is, I think, why, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to convince someone to be a CEO of a large publicly traded company because it comes with a lot of headaches. So therefore, all these, all these jobs are very expensive. Great. I think um, this is a, a good chance to go to the final question. Um, and, you know, first of all, I want to say, Margaret, like, thank you for letting us uh, turn the tables on you. It has been just like, I personally have enjoyed it immensely, um, getting a chance to talk through. Good. We still um, get along, even though we disagree and all this stuff? <laughs> I think exactly. so, yeah. We're still fine. <laughs> okay, cool. If we take you guys are coming back away. to work tomorrow? Not that anybody's going <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> I'll be on Zoom with you tomorrow. Don't worry, Margaret. All right. I appreciate it. I guess my my final question here is is a is a is a general one, but you know we've covered a lot of ground here from like the specific examples of Basecamp, Peloton, you know we've uh, there's been some common themes there around building trust. Um, what is it that it, for a founder or somebody building today, what do you hope that they most take away from this conversation in this particular moment? Because I think there's really never been 
in some ways a more difficult time to try and navigate some of these big social questions while building a business and building things is hard enough as it is. So what's the, the big takeaway you hope they have? I think the big takeaway, it's a, it's a little bit of a Debbie Downer kind of takeaway. It's like you kind of don't have a choice as a founder or CEO, whatever size company you have to engage very, very deeply in the internal culture, the um, human resources function, and internal and ex external communications. These have, and I'm not talking my book here, like I, I have a job, right? But like these functions are becoming ever more important because what you say matters. And I, I have experienced this personally. I just sort of think as a CEO, one kind of goes around the world and mostly you're thinking about like, how do I solve this next problem? How are we going to hire enough people? Da, 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 da. And like, you kind of say stuff and you, you aren't fully aware that it lands like a hammer. Like whatever you say, you know, people, people go think about that for, you know, days, weeks, hours, whatever it is, but people think about every damn thing that you say. Um, and they, they ascribe it a much deeper meaning. You may have said something that you're thinking out loud. You don't even need. So it's really, really important to be, um, not be scared, but be deliberate about it. Just engage and like, okay, how do we think about the company culture? What do I want to say about that? How do we make it safe for people to say something they don't mean, say something and have a gaffe and like, have that be okay. How do I want people to be with each other, right? Like that, those in questions are becoming increasingly important until the world calms down a little bit. And, you know, in my experience, I've been around for a bit, the world tends to not calm down. So I think that we're going to be stuck with this one for a while. I think that is a, a great one to, to close the room out on. Uh, so I just want to say like a huge thank you to everybody who joined us today. Um, and if you like the show, I uh, want to tell you that we do have a lot of other A16Z programming, uh, including tomorrow at four o'clock, David Yulovich is doing a show on go to market uh, with Jeff Samuels, the CEO of Iterable. And, and DU is founders. the one with a sense of humor at the firm. So you yes, check that out. He, is, he is he is quite funny. So um, you can see though our full lineup of shows um, if you join the A16Z club on Clubhouse or visit uh, A16Z.com slash Clubhouse. So, uh, and we look forward to seeing you guys next week. So thank you everybody. Thank you very much for um, for doing this, Das and Tina, and for everybody who listened oh, in or asked a question. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks, it everyone. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Tina. Bye, guys. Bye.